All right, good morning. Good morning. Uh, how's everybody doing? Josh is passing out the papers. He said he waited on purpose so y'all wouldn't fill it out early or something like that. But uh, good to see everybody. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Revelation 19. We did finish Revelation 19 last week, but what I'm going to do this morning is do the hearing and keeping, the practical side at the end, and then we'll get into Revelation chapter 20. Now, if you remember from Revelation 19, we just have got three weeks left. So today is chapter 20, next week is 21, and then 22, and then we're done with the book of Revelation. So y'all have suffered through two quarters. Hopefully you know a little something about the book now. But anyway, last week in Revelation 19, we talked about how after Babylon falls, that's chapter 18, Babylon is fallen. In Revelation 18, 20, uh, the Christians are told to rejoice over Babylon's fall. In Revelation 19 is that rejoicing. We talked about hallelujah and the various things that happened there and God's people enjoy victory. Now we had to speed through kind of at the end. I'm still not going to go over it, but I'm just going to tell you at the end, you remember Jesus comes in, he's riding on the white horse. He has on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has a sword and with that sword, which is the word that comes out of his mouth, he vanquishes and defeats the enemies. And so that's Revelation 19. Here is the hearing and keeping. And I think I have it on the worksheet there so y'all can fill it in. But yeah, here's the keeping, hearing and keeping of Revelation 19, the practicality. Number one, uh, don't forget your hallelujah when God grants rescue. And I think you see that in these in Revelation 19. I told you the word hallelujah means praise Yahweh or praise God, only found in Revelation 19 in the New Testament. Now in Hebrew, it's all over the Old Testament, but in the New, it's in Revelation 19. And there's a threefold purpose for the hallelujahs of Revelation 19. If you notice in the first two verses, hallelujah to God because of salvation, glory, and power that belong to him because of judgment. If you look at verse 3, there's the hallelujah toward God because of the smoke of judgment that goes up forever and ever. And that's about Babylon being destroyed and about the smoke that goes up forever and ever. And then because the Lord our God Almighty reigns, Revelation 19, 6. But one of the things we learn in these hearing and keeping sections, I'm hoping we do the exegesis, we do the exposition, here's what the passage means. But then these hearing and keeping sections say, what do we take from this? And I hope we take from Revelation 19 that we need to have a hallelujah within us when we're delivered, when, we're, when we have our prayers answered and when God delivers us. Number two, God does avenge the blood of his saints. And since God settles the score, Christians don't have to keep score. And so Revelation 19, you remember in chapter 6, 9, and 10, what do the souls of, under the altar cry out to God? Revelation 6, 9, and 10. How long before God does what? Avenge our blood on those that have martyred us. Revelation 19, though, that prayer is answered because you see in this chapter where it says that God has avenged their blood on those that, look at verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God always settles the score. So that frees you and me from keeping the score. 1 Corinthians 13, you remember 4 through 7, Paul says, love especially verse 5, and the NIV probably handles the Greek here the best, love keeps no record of right and wrong. Love doesn't tally up. You did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. I know God's going to settle the score. Romans 12, 19 through 21, that's what allows us to leave place for God's wrath and never take vengeance because we trust that God will make it right. And Revelation 19 teaches that. We had to wait some nine chapters, ten chapters to get here, but here it is and God does avenge. Number three, Focus on the win and not the win. We talked about this last week. I know some of y'all are looking at me like, what? But remember last week we said, how could these Christians praise God not knowing when, W-H-E-N, the victory was going to come? They didn't know. 
and it didn't happen in their lifetime. Many of them died before they ever enjoyed the victory. But focus on this part. Focus on the win, that we will win, and forget about the timetable of when God's going to grant that victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because that's our reality. Doesn't matter when he does it, we know that he will. We're more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37, and Revelation 19 teaches us that. Forget the timetables. They were already praising God as if Rome had already fallen. Remember, John writes this about the fall of Rome. But when John says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Revelation 22, 21, it wasn't like they woke up the next day and Rome fell. Be centuries later, a couple at least, before Rome completely is vanquished and done away with. And so they still praise God, though, knowing that it was going to happen. Next, we either RSVP for the banquet or the burning, but we RSVP for one or the other. Revelation 19 has a banquet, but it also has those that are going to be burned up as they rebelled. And we have the false prophet and the beast in Revelation 19 that experienced this burning and this punishment. Everybody in the world, RSVPs for one or the other, either for the divine banquet with Jesus or for the burning of eternal judgment. And Jesus talked about hell in the New Testament more than anybody else because he knew the horrors of hell and he wanted to save people from it. But right now, everybody's RSVPing for one or the other. And Revelation 19 says, do it right. If you look at Revelation 19.9, it says, Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. That's where we want to be. We want to be those that RSVP for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we won't be punished with the wicked. Next, God is the only one worthy of worship. That's Revelation 19.10. John sees all of these great things happening, and what does he do before the angel in Revelation 19.10? He fell to his feet to do what? Worship. Every time we worship someone else or something else outside of God, we cheapen worship. And we just need to remind ourselves we cheapen ourselves as worshipers when we do. Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 both talk about the fact that we become like what we worship. We do. And if we worship that which is worthless, we cheapen ourselves and we become worthless as a result. This is the last one. Remember that these are the true words of God. That's what John says, Revelation 19 and verse number 10, or at the end of verse 9, he said to me, these are the true words of God. Just always remind yourself of the truth of God's word regularly. These are the true words of God, not just the true words of Paul or of John or of Moses or of David. These are the true words of God. And the Christians in Rome in the seven churches, and when this book was eventually copied and passed around to the other churches outside of Asia Minor, they needed to remember these are the true words of God. Whether we always feel like that or not, these words are true. All right, that's Revelation 19. Now, let's get ready for Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 20. All right, I would say, I think I've said this about several chapters, but I'm serious this time, okay? This is probably the most complicated chapter in the book, at least in the minds of some people. I think as we go through it, you'll find it may not be that problematic, but a lot of people make a lot of noise and fuss about Revelation 20. In fact, if you read commentaries or studies on Revelation, some people would treat it as if Revelation 20 is what the whole Bible revolves around in their view, in their theology. And so we just need to make sure that we appreciate what John's saying, but also what he's not saying. If you've ever heard anybody refer to themselves as premillennial or postmillennial, it comes from this verse, this chapter is where that idea comes from. If you know anybody who thinks, you know, one day Jesus is going to come back 
and reign in Israel on a literal throne of David and we've got to protect the state of Israel and the acreage there in the land because Jesus is going to come back and set up an earthly kingdom on the throne of David in keeping with 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. All of those ideas come from this chapter. The thousand year reign, Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years and after the great tribulation, we're going to reign with Jesus for a thousand. It comes from this chapter. Now, what we're not going to do is spend all of our time talking about what this chapter doesn't teach. I don't think we need to become experts in error. I think we need to study the truth and that'll help us sort out the rest. But I'm just telling you that those ideas come in this chapter. And so before we start, I just want to get us prepared for Revelation 20 by noticing a few key themes and ideas. Here's number one. As you read the book of Revelation, especially chapter 20, remember that in the end, the book of Revelation is surrounded by, the book of Revelation is surrounded by two major events. The first major event in the book is the judgment of Rome, and the second major event in the whole book is the victory of the church. Those are the two major events as I see it in the book. The judgment of Rome and the victory of the church. And the victory of the church is coming in chapters 21 and 22. We'll study that in the next two weeks. The judgment of Rome starts in chapter 17 and works its way through. And I think an exclamation mark is here in chapter 20. Just keep in mind these are the two major events. And if we fail to remember that and make this chapter or any part of the book about anything else, we've misread it. The judgment of Rome, the victory of the church is what we're seeing over and over again in these 22 chapters. Number two, appreciate the context. The context of the book of Revelation is in the first century. At the beginning of the book, in the middle, and at the end, John tells us the things he's writing about will come to pass when? Shortly or soon. Here are the verses, again, just so we remember. Revelation 1.1, Revelation 1.3, Revelation 3.11, 22.6, 22.7, 22.10, 22.12, 22.20. Over and over again, John's telling people these things are going to shortly come to pass. People come to the book of Revelation and they say, well, what John really meant was like 2,000 years later in our lifetime or after World War III or something like that. Any view of the book that cheapens its application to people in the first century context, it's the wrong reading. Any view of the book that means you've got to have a PhD in confusion to understand what John's saying, it's the wrong interpretation. The context of the book is important and you'll see that as we go. The third thing, don't miss the forest for the trees. Some people like details, some people don't. You get technical and some people go to sleep and then other people love it. I just want you to know, we're gonna read about some detailed things in Revelation 20. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Just keep in mind the two major events in the book, which are the judgment of Rome and if you keep those in mind, whatever you lose in the details, I don't understand all the minutia, all the details, you won't be lost on John's major message. Here's another one, and this also applies to next week, by the way, but we'll talk about chapter 21 and chapter 21. Similar language in the book of Revelation does not mean identical. Here's what I mean. There's a judgment scene at the end of Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was found no place for them. The books were open. That could be the final judgment. And if you think it's the final judgment, or if I think it's the final judgment, that's fine. But just because it sounds like it is, doesn't mean that it is. We've got to keep the book in its context. Similar language doesn't mean identical language. You get to chapter 21 and you say, this sounds like heaven to me. No more tears, no more. And it could be. But just because we think it so, doesn't make it so. And so let's just make sure. Similar language doesn't mean identical. Just stay true to the context. And here's the last thing. A summary of the events. So 
here's the summary of what's going to happen in Revelation 20. Make no mistake about it, what John sees is the defeat of the devil and those aligned with him as they are judged. And he sees the triumph of Christians who have suffered for following Jesus and the ultimate victory that they enjoy as he gets us ready for chapter 21. So let's read all of chapter 20. It's only 15 verses. I think we can handle 15 verses without interruption. What do you think? All right, we will. All right, let's read chapter 20, get a bird's eye view of what's going on, and then there are just four major breaks in the text, and then we'll do the hearing and keeping, and we'll be done. Revelation 20, I'm starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And there he must be released. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan was released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, that's Revelation chapter 20. And now let's sort of dig in and see exactly what John's saying, keeping all of these things in mind, keeping the major scope of Revelation 20 in mind, which is the overthrow and defeat of the devil and the victory of those that have aligned themselves with Jesus Christ. The first section is Revelation 21 through 3. All right. So first, appreciate what John says in verse 1. He saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to what? The bottomless pit, or this is just the abyss. If you use the ESV, they give you the footnote which says this is reference to the abyss. That's what the Greek word is, and it just is the netherworld. Um, if you look up in your Bible, if you're in Revelation 20 and verse 1, if you just look up at chapter 19, and if you start in verse 19, it says, John saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered to make war against the one seated on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. And if you just go down at the end of verse 20, what does it say? These two were thrown alive where? All right, so throughout the book, there's been the true trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then there's the false trinity, which is the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself. At the end of 19, 
two of the three have already been defeated. That is the false prophet and the beast. And so in Revelation 20, what we see is Satan's going to finally be defeated and overthrown as well. He is the one that's ultimately behind the persecution from Rome against the Christians. And John here describes him as being thrown into the abyss. What does the angel have in his hand? In verse 1, chapter 20 and verse 1. The key, a key and a chain. He has the key to the bottomless pit. You mark, if you mark in your Bible, write Revelation 9 and verse 1 and 9 11 here because that's where the key was originally. At first, the enemies of God had the key that would do wrong to his people, but John's getting us ready to see the devil has been stripped of all his power. He no longer has it. He doesn't possess the keys of death and Hades, but God does. This angel has a great chain, and of course he's speaking symbolically about being able to bind the devil. I don't think there's any need in Revelation 20 to make anything that the... John saw here literal, he's speaking figuratively about the devil being seized. In fact, this word in verse 2, he sees the dragon. It appears in the New Testament a lot of times to talk about somebody who's arrested and who's in prison. And so when John was seized or when they came to seize Jesus, they used this same word. And it's just saying the devil's been arrested for a time and he's now under God's custody. The devil basically has no more power. All right, so we, got, we make sense of that. This angel comes, he has this key and this chain, and the devil's been seized. We probably don't have any trouble with that. But here's where the trouble does come. How long is the devil bound at the end of verse 2? For a thousand years. And that's where the trouble comes in. And this is where people talk about the thousand years, which means a millennium, and maybe there's going to be this devil being under restraint for a thousand years, and then God's people reign for a thousand years. Just keep in mind, and we're about to talk about what we all think it means, Whatever you do with the thousand years here, it's got to follow throughout the rest of this chapter with the saints and with their reign for a thousand years. So what do we think the thousand years refers to? What do you think it refers to? I've always heard that the thousand years is supposed to be symbolic of fullness and completeness, like the perfect amount of a long time. Okay. A perfect amount of a long time. Anybody else? Or are we all going with Andy? <laughs> all right. So here's some things to just consider. And I think Andy's right. It does symbolize completely, completeness. How have numbers been used throughout the book of Revelation so far? Literally or figuratively? Figuratively. They typically represent something. They normally don't represent the exact number. They normally represent something else. And what about the number 1,000? Have we seen it in the book of Revelation at all? So far, 144, how many? thousand were standing and this represented the totality of the saved and the redeemed the number 10 signifies complete completeness and then if you just take that and then you make it 1000 it's saying total completeness like in the old testament the holies of holies this whole area is holy but the holies of holies is especially holy when john talks about the number 1000 he's talking about something that is totally complete and if you think well how would anybody know that i mean this kind of seems arbitrary I'll take it from you. I accept it. But does the Bible anywhere else help us to appreciate a thousand meaning complete? It does. Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And somebody read for us nice and loud. Deuteronomy 7. And I believe we want verse 9. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Therefore we know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Okay, what does that mean? God keeps covenant love or steadfast love for a thousand generations. Surely that doesn't mean when we get to generation 1001 that God's done with people, right? It doesn't mean that. It means God keeps steadfast love for who? Everybody, completely, that will serve him. Look at a few others. Go to 1 Chronicles 16. 
This is just how 1,000 is used to signify complete in the Bible. 1 Chronicles 16, and let's get somebody to read verse 15. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Okay, so here's the song of David praising God. And he says, hey, keep God's love. Remember his covenant love forever. That's the first part. And then he just follows that up with another parallel statement. God commanded his love for a thousand generations. We won't read all of these, but I'll give you another one that pretty much everybody here may know. Psalm 50 and verse 10 says, God owns the cattle on how many hills? So does that mean if there's a thousand and one hills, God can't go there? That's not his cattle. He doesn't own that one. What does it mean? I own a cattle on a thousand hills. It means God owns how much cattle? A thousand in the Bible most times. Not all, but most times it just signifies complete, total, all. When John says Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years, it means Satan is going to be completely bound in relation to his ability to disrupt Christians and persecute them through the Romans. And so Satan is completely bound and he is powerless to escape. And then you see this angel in verse three, verse three of Revelation 20 throws him into a pit, seals it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So he's thrown into this pit. This verse shows the dominance that God and his messengers will exercise over the devil. And I think it's dealing with something specific. Satan is bound in relation to the persecution of the Romans. But what does John say is going to happen after the thousand years at the end of verse 3? He's going to be released when? After a little while. If a thousand represents a status, it means complete, then I think a little while does too. It means there's going to be other opportunities for the devil to get loose and to persecute God's people. Once God stamps out his persecution through the Romans, there's going to be another time when God allows the devil to again be able to be released and do what the devil tries to do in the world. This thousand year binding doesn't mean the devil's never going to trouble God's people again. He would. Why does God release the devil for a little while why must the devil be released for a little while why does God permit him to continue to do his work in the world so once Domitian dies and eventually the Roman Empire falls there's no more persecution but why doesn't God just do away with Satan altogether why does he release him for a little while we see he's bound and if God wants to he can bind the devil why does he release him for a time Why do you think God permits the devil even now? We know 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, it says, The devil as a roaring lion walks about doing what? Seeking whom he may devour. He wouldn't walk around unless God permitted him to do it, though, because there was a time period of complete, at least complete subduedness where he couldn't do this and he was bound for a thousand years. So why would God release him for a little while? Which probably includes right now the devil's released he can persecute us he can try to harm us not literally the devil's not in every place but his influence is felt throughout the world and just start thinking about why does God allow that to happen Russell well you can't find out what true gold is until it's until it's tested and God doesn't tempt us but the devil does God allows I think We won't know who we are unless we have trouble. I mean, if everything's good all the time, you don't really know who you are. When trouble comes, you'll find out who you are. When trouble comes, you'll find out your right. Okay, so one of the reasons why God allows the devil to roam free is to test the genuineness of his people. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter says, Our faith is like gold refined, right? And once we're, temp- once we're tested... We figure out who we really are. God doesn't make the devil tempt us, but he allows it to test the genuineness of our faith. Any other reason why God would allow the devil to roam free for a little while? Why else does God allow the devil to roam free in the world? To test the genuineness of our faith and what else? 
it's a fallen world and it gives us something to look forward to. If it was a perfect world, we would just want to stay here and we have no motivation to heaven. I think that's right. God wants to remind us every day that we're in world number two. The Bible talks about three worlds, by the way. The first world is with Adam and Eve. We're not in that world anymore. That was the perfect world of Genesis 1 and 2. After Genesis chapter 3, and especially after the flood, the world's different. But that was world number one. World number three, the new heavens and new earth, eternal paradise with God. That's world number three when this life is over. But you and I are currently in world number two. And we need to be reminded of that every day. We're not in world number one. It, sometimes people say, if Adam and Eve never sinned, we'd be in hammocks just swinging. Hang, have, we're not there. And we're never going to be there. And we're not in world number three yet. And a part of the devil's temptation and God allowing him to disrupt our lives is so that we always remember. We're still in world number two. And as Amanda mentioned, it gives us something to strive for. Here's another one. We need to willfully choose good over evil. And also, God will ultimately and finally defeat him for everyone to see. God wants to win every round. God wants every generation to overcome and overwhelm the devil. And so how should what we read in verses 1 through 3 impact you and me as Christians? If we know the devil's been bound and God eventually will release him, and it's going to happen in this chapter, how does what we just read impact our lives as Christians? The fact that the devil has been bound by God in the past, the Christians did overcome Roman persecution, but God does release him for a little while. How does this impact us as God's people? Okay, yeah, he doesn't have power over us. We're protected by God's grace. What else? We will win. We will win? How do we know that? What's proof that we'll win in Revelation? God has the chain and the key, and the devil's been defeated before. He'll be defeated again. There are two extremes to avoid concerning the devil. Some people, the devil was defeated at Calvary. He has no power. He can't do anything. And he was defeated at Calvary. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says that Jesus destroyed the power over them, the devil, who had the power of death. He was defeated at Calvary in the sense of sin no longer reigns in the world. Death has been overcome. But God still allow, allows him to exist and to persecute and to test and try us. But we're reminded he was defeated and he'll be defeated now. One extreme is the devil's defeated, no problem. The other extreme, though, is to become obsessed with the devil. We need to be informed about what he can do, but don't become obsessed. He can't, he doesn't make people do things. We sometimes, the devil knows my weakness. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say the devil is omniscient. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what we're doing and knows how to get us. He has three avenues of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and what's the third one? Now, he tries a bunch of different stuff. And based on what we give into, we tip him off into, hey, this person likes this. We'll serve more of that up tomorrow. But the devil doesn't know your weaknesses and your temptations and where you're going to be. He, he can be bound. He can be overcome. He can be defeated. He was then, and he will be in the end. Here's the second part of what John says. He discusses the resurrection and the reign of the righteous in 4 through 6. John says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and they had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So... John says he saw these thrones and seated on them were those that have been given authority to judge. The Bible talks about who being the ultimate judge. Who's the one that's going to do the judging in the last day specifically? Somebody said it. 
Jesus, yes. Ms. Nita says Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, 22 through 24, the Father judges no man, but has given all judgment to the Son, that everyone may submit to the Son just like they do the Father. Jesus is going to do the judging, but the Bible also says that those that are redeemed exercise a degree of judgment as well. And so 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, Paul says, Don't you know that Christians, saints, will judge the angels? And I don't know all of what that's about, but we do exercise a degree of judgment. And here, John has these individuals seated on thrones. They have authority to judge. These are the people that were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and they didn't worship the beast or his image. Who is John talking about in these verses, in verse 4 specifically? Those who have been martyr or we're about to be who would that include that we know of in the bible potentially james john the baptist maybe yeah but specifically with roman persecution paul peter was beheaded or at least crucified in ad 64 65 so these individuals would have made up that group and everybody else antipas we don't know much about him but in revelation 2 13 he was killed for his faith these individuals are now reigning with Jesus. They're reigning with Jesus in the first century in the heavenly realm as life is ended for them on earth, but they reign eternally with Jesus. And so verse 4 is talking about these individuals. It looked like they lost, but they ultimately at one. But then he says in verse 5, the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. I believe this rest of the dead is the ungodly world of the first century. The Christians reign with Jesus in verse 4, but the rest of the dead, the people that served the Romans, the people that went along with emperor worship, these individuals, they don't enjoy this resurrection. They don't enjoy the second life. What did Paul say when he was facing death in Philippians 1.21? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was going to win. These Christians in verse 4, they had been beheaded, but they were rising to enjoy what John calls here the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead, that would be these individuals who went along with emperor worship. They didn't. They weren't a part of that. This first resurrection is for these individuals who are in the company of the righteous and in the company of the saved. Russell? Could that be paradox? Could it be paradox? I believe that's what it is. Yeah, when people die today, I believe we go into paradise and in that realm, we enjoy God's presence until the resurrection of the body and then we go to live with God forever. But yes, when people die, they go into the Hadean realm of paradise and await the resurrection of the body. So when Christ was crucified, he went into the realm too, but he went into Hades to overcome, to overcome death for us. Yes. Let me say something about Hades since you asked this question. In the Bible, and the King James sometimes calls this hell, which is why people think Jesus went to hell. Jesus did not go to hell. We all clear on that? Jesus didn't go to hell. If anybody was unworthy to go to hell, it was Jesus. He didn't go. But anyway, Hades in the Bible is a place. It's just a place of the realm of the dead. But Hades is composed of two different places, compartments, I mean. So you would have Hades, but then there would be paradise, and there would be torment. There are two different, everybody that dies goes into the Hadean realm, either in paradise or in torment. And so everybody goes to Hades. Don't think of Hades as the bad place or necessarily the good place. It's just the realm of the dead. Now, where you go in either one of those places depends on how you live. And there are some people that believe there is no longer Hades. When you die, you go directly into the presence of God or you go straight to eternal hell and await judgment. But I think we do. We go to Hades and await the resurrection of the body and final judgment. And these folks that have been beheaded, they're in paradise with God. And John refers to that here as the first resurrection. Notice verse 6. 
He says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there are several of these blessed statements in the book of Revelation, these beatitudes. And here is the fifth one where John says, these individuals that take part in the first resurrection are blessed. The second death can't touch them or have power over them, but they're priests of God in Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. So here's the question. Russell kind of gave us the first one already. What is the first resurrection? That's what these folks are enjoying. What is the first resurrection and when does that happen? Somebody said paradise? Yeah, paradise. Now there's a sense in which it starts for everybody when they obey the gospel though, right? What does Paul call baptism? A death, a burial, and you rise out of those waters and that's called a what? Resurrection. And everybody that undergoes that is prepared for paradise unless we forfeit our salvation and turn away from God. So there is the first resurrection. What does John mean here by the second death? Over them, the second death has no power. What's the second death? Judgment. So the first death, who has to undergo the first death? Everybody, right? Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this... The judgment. No amount of faith or religion is going to keep us out of the first death unless Jesus comes back first. Everybody undergoes the first death, but the second death, that's the eternal judgment and the torment that we want to avoid. And then what is this last part in verse 6? They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What does this deal with? What did the thousand years refer to with the devil? What did we say it represented? Completeness, right? Total. So what does this thousand year reign represent? It's not a trick question. Completeness, total. They're completely with God. They totally reign with him. And they'll do that for a complete amount of time in relation to their overcoming the Romans. Now, while many view this text as evidence for Jesus reigning on Palestine for a thousand years, that's where the millennium comes from. They say, hey, Revelation 20 and verse 6 is your passage. Jesus is going to come back to earth and reign for a thousand years. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want us to just keep your Bible at Revelation 24 through 6 and just notice a few things. If you've got friends or loved ones who are premillennial, postmillennial, they believe in the rapture, and after that rapture, we're suspended for seven years while tribulation happens on earth, and then Jesus comes to Palestine and gives Israel the land. All of that comes from this one verse. And here are just a few things from the text itself to appreciate. Number one, Palestine or Israel is not mentioned at all in the verse. It's not even here. The place Palestine, this is about a heavenly reign and heavenly realm. Number two, the redeemed reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but it doesn't say anything about how long Jesus had been reigning. If somebody says, Hiram walked with Neil for 10 miles, how many miles did Hiram walk? Everybody, easy math. How many miles did Hiram walk? I know y'all hate this word problems. If Sally had 10 pieces of pizza, I don't care how many pieces she had, right? Look, if Hiram walked with Neil for 10 miles, how many miles did Hiram walk? How long did Neil walk? When did Neil start? How long? We don't know, see. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This says nothing about how long Jesus has been reigning. According to Acts chapter 2, Jesus started reigning on David's spiritual throne when he was resurrected and he ascended to heaven. This doesn't even say Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. Jesus is seated on David's throne, quote unquote, right now reigning in heaven. The Bible doesn't ever say Jesus is going to come back to Palestine and reign on a literal throne. Number three, this reign is in heaven where Jesus is and where these individuals are. And then number four, there's no mention of the throne of David, the rapture, or a period of tribulation. Many of the things normally associated with the premillennial and postmillennial ideas that a lot of people have. 
And just keep in mind that premillennialism or postmillennialism, some people might be thinking about this. What's the big deal? Who cares if somebody believes that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years or if they don't on earth? It's a big deal because it undermines what Jesus is doing right now. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and notice verse, we'll start in verse number 20. People that think Jesus won't reign until he comes back, they tend to think of the church as just kind of like a placeholder until he comes and really does what he wants to do with Israel. But it undermines what the Bible teaches, undermines the church and Jesus' reign right now. Verse 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards those who belong to Christ. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Paul says he's already reigning. When Jesus comes back, he won't start reigning. He will deliver up the kingdom to God. He won't come to earth and establish a kingdom. The kingdom's already here now. It's the church. These individuals in Revelation 20 were reigning with Jesus in the sense that they enjoyed complete victory over the Romans. The Romans thought we killed them. That's the last we'll see of them. But they were in paradise having the last laugh with Christ for that complete period of peace and time. And that's Revelation 20, 4 through 6. All right. Let's look at Revelation 27 through 10. We will finish Revelation 20 today. Don't worry. All right, so here's the defeat of Satan. Just when you figured out all of the thousand years, John gets a little bit more confusing. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So the devil was bound for how long in Revelation 21 through 3? A thousand years. But John tells us at some point he's going to be what from that prison? He's going to be released after a little while. Then John changes the scene. If this is a TV show, John changes. He says, hey, check out the Christians in 4 through 6. They're reigning. They're enjoying peace. They haven't been defeated. You haven't seen the last of them. They reign with Christ. And now he goes back to the devil in 7 through 8. And the little time has come. The devil's released. In verse 7, he says, when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released out of his prison. And what does this mean? It means... The devil was completely defeated after he tried to use the Romans to persecute Christians. But that's not the last of the devil. Every generation has to do business with the devil that's going to follow God. And he's released out of that prison in order to try to torment the nations. Luke chapter 4, Jesus defeats the devil. You remember in the wilderness? How did Jesus defeat the devil? Three times he said what? It is written. He responded with scripture. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Luke does. Luke 4.13 says... He waited for an opportune time to tempt Jesus again. So that wasn't the last time. You say Jesus got tempted in the wilderness. There are other undocumented times in Jesus' life when the devil tried to tempt him. The church perseveres after the Romans. But the devil's going to be released from prison and he'll try again. And now look at verse 7, or verse 8, excuse me. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And who are these two nations? Who does he say? Gog and Magog. Okay, where do they come from? What do we know about them? Ezekiel what? 38 and 39. But they go back before Ezekiel. 
So if you write and you want to run these references down, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 2, that's the first time you read about Magog. He's one of the sons of Jephthah. And if you want to know about who Gog was, he's the son of Joel in 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 4. So they've got an ancient history. They are actual people. But then when you get to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, they're used metaphorically for nations that want to persecute Israel. And that's how John uses them here. There is no literal Gog and Magog. When God's people were in Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel says, hey, God's going to bring you home. And if you're a Jew in the, first, in the times of Ezekiel, you'd be thinking, so what? That's happened before. And we always end up here. And Ezekiel says, yeah, people are going to try to persecute you. They'll be like Gog and Magog. They'll be like the sands of the sea. And God's still going to establish his kingdom and do great things with you. And then John says, hey, the devil's going to be released from prison. And then this Gog and Magog, they're going to come out. And they're going to also team up with the devil. But remember, just like God defeated the Romans and bound Satan for a thousand years, even this Gog and Magog with this great army, and that would just be whoever, any earthly nation today that tries to persecute the people of God and align any system, any ideology that tries to persecute the people of God can be termed Gog and Magog. And guess what their end is? Look at verse number 9. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's the church, but what happens to them? I was wondering why y'all were looking at me crazy. Y'all want the sheep. Sorry. All right. Or maybe y'all were just looking at me crazy, but some of y'all want the sheep. Okay, verse 9. What's going to happen to them? These people march up over the broad plain of the earth, surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire comes down from heaven and does what to them? Consumes them. This is what happens to all of God's enemies. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 says that Jesus will destroy his enemies with the breath of his mouth. And then notice what happens in verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever as he persecutes the people of God. All right, everybody clear up to this point with Revelation 20. All right, so these passages mention fire burning and brimstone and the people of God, and here it is. It's just showing Satan was a loser then. Satan is a loser now, and eventually Satan will be a loser according to Revelation 20 and verse 10 forever and ever. And that's what the Christians needed to know. The last part of Revelation 20 is the judgment scene. That's in verses 11 through 15. Now, here's what I want to say about Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It's possible that this is the final judgment, and it reads like a final judgment, and it could be. I think John's talking about the judgment that happens on Rome and on the devil and on these people in the first century. But if you think it's about the final end time judgment, doesn't matter. It could be either way. I believe that John's dealing specifically with things that must shortly come to pass and using, yes, final judgment language to describe what's going to happen to the Romans, but eventually to everybody. But I don't think John fast forwards to the end of time and talks about the final judgment for a lot of reasons. One, he says he saw the dead, small and great standing before God. And then the books were opened throughout the book of Revelation. The dead always refer to the enemies of God's people. Even when the Christians are martyred in the book, they're always described as alive. John's judgment here is specifically, I think, dealing with the Romans. But regardless of what you think about that, look at verse 11 through 15. I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written according to what they had done. 
the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So John saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. Who would that be? Who's seated on the throne? God. Revelation 4, Jesus would be there too. Yeah. So John sees that throughout the book. The earth is the domain for the wicked, but the earth and the sky flee away. And then John says he saw the dead standing before the throne and they were judged according to their works. Look at verse number 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Why doesn't John see anybody who's alive? Aren't people that are living going to be judged too? Aren't they going to be at the judgment? If you're alive when Jesus comes back, won't you be present at the judgment? Why does John say he saw the dead, small and great? I think it's because John's specifically dealing with the wicked Romans who died in the persecution. I don't think he's dealing with the end of all time and everybody because he doesn't mention living people. He's only mentioning the dead. In fact, there's nothing positive in this judgment. John doesn't say, hey, I saw the dead. They went to hell and then the righteous went to heaven. This is entirely about defeat. And I think situated in this context, it's about the defeat of the Romans in the first century and what John describes as the judgment of them. He saw the dead and then he says there's no place for them because death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. There's no place for death to hide anymore. And then everyone not written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. So before we close, here's some things to appreciate, regardless of what you think about Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Here's what we know about judgment. Everybody will experience it. Hebrews 9, 27. Jesus will do the judging. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. It will be according to the words of Jesus, John 12 and verse 48, but also based on our works. Many people will be surprised in the judgment. The righteous will go into eternal life. And by the time we get to the judgment, the fate of everybody who stands there will already be sealed. There won't be any negotiation. Biblically, judgment is more like a sentencing than it is like a trial. It won't be some people standing up saying, but God, can I say something? Objection, Your Honor. I want to say something about where I, you won't be able to. Judgment will be the final sentencing for everybody in the world. And here John says the wicked are completely judged and now they know their fate. All right, one minute left. Any questions on Revelation chapter 20? All right, next week we'll do Revelation 21. We'll do the hearing and keeping at the first part of class for Revelation 20. And then we'll go into Revelation 21. And then there's just one more week. So appreciate everybody. Thanks for a good class. And hope, um, hope it helped to clear up some of the challenging passages in Revelation 20.